Welcome to our Generation Podcast, and it's a real great delight to have a guest today. Uh, a real special treat to have a guest from over the pond. And my guest is Scotty Smith. Scotty, what can we say about Scotty? He is a poet. He doesn't think he is, but he really is. Um, he was a pastor for many years in Christ Community Church in Nashville, Tennessee. His name, of course, is Scotty Smith. Not only that, he is a model for Birkenstock sandals. Yeah, I didn't wear them today. <laughs> well, it's a cold Edinburgh day, Scotty, so you would not <laughs> wear Birkenstocks. Welcome to Scotland. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here again. Is this your first visit to Scotland? No, actually, the first time I came, one of my first uh, mentor not mentors, but protégés in ministry— came to Edinburgh to get his doctorate while he was being a missionary to Japan. So we right. invited us up and we came to this grand city, had my first haggis, and yeah. uh, but I come back. I think this is my fourth visit to Edinburgh. And did you kill the haggis yourself? You know what? Actually, I had the first haggis with you. We were two years ago yep. at this uh, event. We went to a very nice restaurant in downtown Edinburgh and they brought out what haggis, and I'm not sure what my stereotype was, but this amazing uh, reduction Reduced sauce on it that I think yeah, you could I, put on anything and it would be good. I, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. We meet in all sorts of strange places all over the world. We met in Poland uh, a few yes. months ago, so it's great to have you here. Good to be uh, here. in Edinburgh. Let's just talk about various things, um, Scotty. And it's kind of random. I, I don't know where where we'll go, but I've just heard Scotty preach a great sermon from Zephaniah chapter three. You mention. Grace a lot. Yeah. Okay, it's a real basic question, but what is grace? Well, think great question and needs to be always wrestled with, articulated, David, because culture I grew up in, unfortunately, grace used to be held over against law or something. You know, the word grace in the context of spirituality or a Christian story sometimes uh, has been presented as a, a kinder version of a rigorous Christianity, when really, grace, what I think of when I use the word very much just like when I use the word gospel, I think of a person, not propositions. I think of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's amazing uh, gift of His favor that comes to us through completely through the finished work of His Son Jesus. So it is a it's a larger category than uh, oftentimes we think. Is grace just being nice? No, I know. In fact, uh, sometimes in my culture we uh, confuse nice with. Uh, just kind manners. And uh, yeah. no, I think the most disruptive force on the face of the earth is God's grace because yeah. it declares at the same time the depth of my need, but also the wonder of God's provision. What do you think about the word nice? Was Jesus nice? Uh, no, I don't. You know, Jesus was incredibly kind, but kind in a way that was not uh, confined by a culture of of conflict avoidance, you know. I think we would all find him. In fact, when we read the New Testament, we see Jesus as being amazingly kind, especially to the brokenhearted and the humble, but absolutely disruptive in the presence of the proud and the arrogant. So he wasn't very nice with proud people. Great. Let's unpack another word, and they both begin with G. Of course, we spoke about grace. Um, let's talk a bit about the gospel. Yes. I know that it's not difficult to get you talking about the gospel. <laughs> so 
we've tried to define grace. Okay, the caveat is we could be years defining grace. Of course. We could be centuries defining the gospel. So you're sitting on a train, a guy opposite you starts talking, mm-hmm. you tell him your story, you're from Graham, North Carolina, you're a pastor, you preach mm-hmm. the gospel. The guy in the train, he's a Scottish guy, mm. he's pretty secular. He says, Scotty, what's the gospel? Yeah. Well, you know, great again, great question. And thank you for even framing that because that's the very conversation and the very kind of neighbor on a bus or a train I need to be more sensitive to. Uh, you know, I think, David, now I would start, and I do start in sharing this grand reality called the gospel but given an appropriate background, before the gospel was connected, before the word gospel was connected to the New Testament documents, it's just a good secular word. It's, it's, a, it's a word that, in essence, would almost have a synonym with um, the way things are, or, or here's, here's, uh, uh, here's what the prevailing authority uh, says life is going to be like in this community. So, uh, in the New Testament, in response to the person and the work of Jesus, there's a new declaration of truth, of beauty, of what's what's good, what's true, what's beautiful. And I think, David, all of us think in those categories. All of us live by the nature of story. We do life in terms of the rhythm of value and meaning. And so I, I would really want to uh, speak with someone, not even primarily starting necessarily with religious language, but just talking about being intrigued with... Um, how they view life, what, what's, 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 what's their gospel, i.e., how have they come in any season of life to make meaning? And, what's their worldview? What's their worldview? So if you're engaging someone who didn't appear to be a Christian, mm-hmm. you'd be interested in them. Yeah, And you'd yeah, be asking absolutely. them questions, yeah. first of all. Yeah. I would want to know, and, I, and I, I, would, I would hope my heart increasingly would do that because that's consistent with... The gospel of the Lord Jesus. We're image bearers of God. You know, there are, as C.S. Lewis said, no ordinary people. And I would want to, I would want, you know, God gave me two ears and one mouth. So the ratio of listening to speaking, I think, is something that we who are Christ followers should be more aware of. And I want to, I want to listen to a person before I try to um, fix them. Okay. Just to get a little bit more focus, you had a great quote this morning or you said something you said um the gospel just doesn't prepare us to die but it prepares us to live yes so a lot of folk have a reductionist view of the gospel the kind of turn or burn summary yes you know (laughs) it is that Mm. but it is much much more than that yes but, you know, can can you expand yes. on that phrase? Yes. Gospel just doesn't prepare us to die, but prepares us to live. Well, it, you know, takes us all the way back to the beginning of um, God's Word, the Bible, where we see that before there's any conversation about something being broken, there's a revelation of what's right, what's good. And so, you know, uh, though it's poetry and actual declaration of the way things are, uh, when I think of the gospel, I think of... It's it's answering it's answering something that was really good that got broken, and so I, you know, I, I think of the part of the gospel conversation is what kind of life did God actually design for us? You know, if uh, if sin and death had never disrupted the world that God made, what can we tell from Genesis one and two about 
the good, the true, and the beautiful, because um, the gospel shows up uh, in response to something that was lost, that by God's generosity is to be not only reclaimed, but made even better. So I think uh, uh, there's an Englishman uh, who's lived in the States for many years named Jerome Bars, and he wrote a great book called The Echoes of Eden, in which he was describing that all of humanity has longings written into our DNA because we are, all of us are made by God for God. And he said, you know, we're, we're not just people that whine, we're people that long. Mm. And I think the gospel says, here's a way I can think about longings, desire, uh, an ache. And, you know, according to the person in the work of Jesus, he has come to uh, free us and to connect us with that for which God actually made us, which is a wonderful life. Yeah. Now, I mean, it seems to me that the world just now is really troubled. There's a lot of tension, there's a lot of division, yes. both sides of the pond. Folk are talking about building walls, folk are talking about wars and rumors of wars. Mm. And in the UK, we are becoming really divided. You you may have heard something called Brexit. Sure. You know, oh, I've heard are, a little something about that. Folk you know, are talking uh, is dividing the nation. Political discourse yes. seems to be really angular and, and bitter. Is this a good context for talking about the cost? There, yeah, I think I think I really believe so. And um David, precisely because of, you know, the, the, the Bible uses a word shalom that we translate as peace to really to capture uh, the tragedy of the division, the, the vitriol, the meanness in our world today, meaning uh, shalom, shalom is the world, it's the, it's the uh, culture, it's the life, it's the community of what we all want but don't know how to get, and, and we tragically... And it's like there was a German philosopher named Schopenhauer that once said, humanity has become like a group of porcupines gathering on a cold winter night. They move together for warmth, they hurt each other, and then they withdraw. And the cycle of history as we see, whether it's you know in our culture right now, which has never been more divided in my nearly 70 years, or over the themes of what's going on in the UK right now. And we see, we, we, we want more than we have. We don't know how to get it. And uh, the biblical story really is God's great provision to put all things right at his, and he's picking up the tab. He's paying the price, which is remarkable. Mm, yeah. Um, again, be, because it's kind of, kind of random, um, you again had a really good expression this morning, which I think, you know, you're not a plagiarist. I think you, you cited the source. Um, we have the lyric of the gospel, but we've lost its music. Can you tell us where you first yes, heard that yes, idea? Yes. Thank you. And I've, I've kind of built on it a little bit. I'll, I'll share a little bit more this afternoon with our friends gathered today. But, um, of course, I live in Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee, where a lot of people come in looking to be songwriters. Because actually there was a day when if you were a songwriter— and recorded a song and had it recorded, you made more than the actual performing artist. Now, things have changed in the world of Spotify, et cetera, but let me back up with my illustration here. So a great songwriter knows there's three elements to a song, a lyric, a melody or music, and its impact, what I would call the dance. Theologically, I've taken that you know language and realized that is how the gospel actually describes what we mean by 
the good news of Jesus. There's a lyric. There's there's revelation. There's truth. Right. We uh, in in our uh, community of faith that even celebrates this podcast. We believe that God has spoken, and it's a great gift. The fact that the Bible is um, God's self revelation. So, as with a good song, there's a lyric. Well, it's not abstract dogma. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, truth is not only true. Truth is not only true. It's beautiful. It's good. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as I read the scripture, and again think about the metaphor of a songwriter. Songwriter may have a great lyric, but if he doesn't write the right melody, that lyric's not really going where it needs to go, which is to capture the whole being unto what we might call a redemptive dance. And so the music of the gospel, even as we were considering some of that this morning in that great prophet Zephaniah, we see God very clearly relating to us in categories of relationship. He doesn't want us just to think rightly about him. He wants us to know him. And it's why Jesus described eternal life, not primarily in the category of living forever, though it includes that, but a quality of life, uh, knowing God and His Son, Jesus. And so the, the, the music of the gospel, as I would use that metaphor, it's uh, that good news penetrating my heart. You know, um, it's, would, It would be hard to imagine that someone in Europe going to a World Cup game would sit there very passively simply saying, I am at a nice Soccer pitch. I mean, there is enthusiasm, there's excitement, there's engagement, you know, on both sides, whether Except you win or lose. Except if you're from Scotland and you'll never well, be at a okay, World Cup right. game. Well, every metaphor has its <laughs> limitations. losers. Keep well, going. Keep the going. Good, well, it, at least we would say this, there's existential crisis. Yeah. There's feelings anyway. <laughs> sure there's feelings of despair or great glee. But, in you know, the, the Bible speaking, uh, telling a story that's true and good and beautiful, and it's God's delight that we enjoy him and know him. And the dance element would be, again, in the metaphor of a songwriter, you want someone to be impacted by what you're saying in that song and its melody so that they buy it, so that they move, so that they respond. The dance of the gospel is our literally getting on the dance floor of God's acceptance and delight, but also it is living and loving missionally, being good neighbors. So we are... We are Believing this incredible narration of creation and new creation, we're feeling it deeply, and it moves us to be for the other, for our neighbor. That's what redemptive dance is. Yeah. Again, you had another great expression this morning that worship, I guess life rather, was to be theologically grounded and doxologically alive. Yes. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Another thing that strikes me is, you know, we talk about Scripture, and we talk about you know, inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, sure. and we often, you know, move these cat- these great words into battle zones. Yes. Whereas if you even think about the word inspiration, yes. isn't it the breath of God, yes. not just a theological yes. weapon to be used against Absolutely, people? Absolutely, David, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for going there, and I maybe just interrupted a question you were going to offer, but let me respond to what you just said there, because it's just so critical in this day. Um, you know, um, there are many who identify as conservative theologically, and, and I certainly am one of those people, but, you know, to appropriately respond to God's revelation, which I do believe is inspired by our God to interpret it appropriately will 
does call us into a deeply relational way of life and a, a deep sense of, again, God is never just, God never calls us from, we're never called just to defend the gospel. We're called to enjoy the gospel. Sure. I mean, even some of our great Westminster divines and dis, dis, discussing what's the chief end of man, isn't that great language? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, early on, even among 17th century United Kingdom, there was an understanding where Mm -hmm. we're not just defending something against the bad guys. Mm -hmm. We're called Mm -hmm. to believe it and to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. God is glorified in that. I mean, you you and I, we're we're both Presbyterian, Westminster Confession of Faith Presbyterians. We are are in one tribe. One of the things, I mean, we are in the middle of a a week of conference just now. We've been talking a lot about folk from the U.S. Part of Generation is planting new churches and revitalizing. Yesterday we had presentations from an independent Presbyterian, a Baptist. I love when the tribes come together. Me too. Scotty, how how can we be belong to a tribe? And, you know, we're not ashamed of that, but also love when other tribes meet together. Uh, Have you found that a blessing in in your own life? Oh, yes. Unfortunately, my two main spiritual mentors, David, were both uh, evangelists and missionaries. So early on in the faith, even as I was kind of a reluctant convert, I was introduced to the uh, story of Scripture in a far more um, multicultural, uh, every nation vision. And I've had, that's had to run through my own prejudices and limitations, of course, as, as a sinner saint. But no, I uh, to read the whole Word of God, I love the fact that we're involved in a God that is far more inclusive. I mean, uh, I studied uh, in a secular university compared to world religion, and what was remarkable in time was to see that the Bible is telling a story of, of grand inclusivity that God has committed to have a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And the gospel now enables me to self-identify in the color of my skin and my tribe, but to know that's a part of a grand story in which God's image is revealed and a gathering. And, and I think the more than now, for instance, gospel renewal would look like in, in Scotland or America where... Uh, professing believers in Jesus from many different backgrounds, respect, honor, own their differences, but focus on what do we primarily have in common, which is Jesus, and how can we love well? When I'm working with churches, I say, okay, guys, let's look to be larger because we want the kingdom to grow, not just the church. I say, let's look to be darker um, that we want, you know, Africans, we want Asians, uh, Hispanics, not just wasps, white Anglo-Saxons, exactly. and we want to be poorer. We we want not just middle class. Exactly. So, so we want to be kingdom oriented. We want to grow the kingdom. Yes. We want to have this glorious diversity in the church. Yes. Um, so that's how kind of homogeneous churches, you know, don't sit easily with us. You know, you know. Well, and you're right, and yet it is when we read the book of Acts, it's precisely the story of God unfolding. You know, yeah. uh, In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, uh, male, female, all this glorious picture of not, not eliminating our differences, but bringing about an incredible unity called reconciliation. Yeah. That's to God's glory. Can we talk a little bit about conflict? You know, 
you were, you know, you did you you didn't set out to be a high profile pastor. It wasn't your fault that your church grew to four thousand uh, no four thousand pounds, four thousand members attending. Um, you know, you I think you used a great expression that was just collateral damage in the explosion of God's yes. grace. You you were there, you know, like yes. like Luther, you yes. know. You know, while I drank Wittenberg beer, God did the work. Amen. Well you know, said. That's he well was said. just, you were just the guy in, ah, in, in the front row. Up. You just watched. Totally, totally, totally. How do you cope with criticism? Nah. Or let's make it a little bit more objective. How should one cope with criticism? Yes. If folk criticize your methodology, yes. if folks say unfair things about yes. you, should you get hurt? How do you deal with that? Well, again, a very relevant question. Uh, I'm so thankful that my spiritual father, Jack Miller, lived out that narrative. I had a father, seminary professor, church planter, coach, who himself lived through great seasons of criticism, both as a pastor, as a seminary professor. And so, you know, to have someone model for me, number one, we know in Scripture that we're called to be teachable. We know that there's a high premium in Scripture on those that are teachable. At the same time, also, uh, fortunately, I learned from Jack Miller that a Christian leader needs a thick skin and a big heart. That's what he used to refer to it as. And, and because, uh, you know, uh, and not just Christian leaders, not just pastors, but people in a position of leadership— uh, a, a part of what goes with being someone willing to lead is uh, the reality you will be criticized, you will be critiqued. And uh, and as, yet, as Jack would say, I've never been more criticized than I was criticized by the cross. So the, the ultimate criticism has taken place. You know, my need was so great, it took the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God to save one someone like me. So what can mere men do to me relative to their criticism? Now, well, we know criticism can hurt a lot, but it is true, David. I think that as leaders, as we're living with a greater awareness of uh, of humility, which is not humiliation, when we're living as those expecting uh, God to continue His work of changing us, then we are not as fragile when we receive criticism. We're not as defensive. But the Bible never calls us to be doormats, but foot washers. So we want to be wise, right, about engaging critics. And uh, I've learned a lot through the years about that. And I uh, was not instinctively someone that welcomed that kind of feedback, but I've learned to be more, I think, gracious and present. Okay, and in the circles we mix in, you know, I hear folks saying, yeah, he's one of the grace guys. Yes. And I am kind of semi-emotionally intelligent, I sometimes get the impression that's not a compliment. That's right. Um, given the fact that, you know, behind every criticism, there may be an element of either truth or yeah. insight. Can you overdose on grace? Can you have too much grace? Or what do you think is a core misunderstanding of people Good. who say, you guys are just obsessed with grace. Yeah. So what I'm trying to tease out are what are the maybe legitimate elements of that critique and what are the illegitimate Very well elements? stated. So we, you know, any even basic read of church history shows us that as the people of God, we tend historically 
to correct an imbalance with an overbalance. So in the conversation of grace, there would be some that would uh, legitimately say, um, some people that have left what we would call rigorism or legalism or performancism have gone overboard with grace to the point of becoming what theologians called antinomian. And that would, basically, that big old word simply means uh, there's some that use the word grace to, in essence, say the law of God, obedience, repentance are no longer functional categories. I am, it's all of grace. God loves me. Uh, he's He's basically not concerned that I, you know, um, fall into any kind of moralism, et cetera. And, you know, the, the people that I know that have gone into at least a brief season of antinomianism, uh, you know, don't stay there necessarily very long. I think if you do come from a legalistic background and discover the good news of God's radical acceptance in Jesus, there's going to be a season by which you're going to be do some maturing. But back to your original question, which I would rather, you know, uh, respond to, I don't think we can ever emphasize God's grace too much, but as with all of God's gifts, here's three ways of responding to any gift of God. There is misuse, there is disuse, and there is right use. No matter what the gift is, and when we think about God's grace, can grace be misused? Yes, we have the whole book of Jude that shows uh, you know, some false teachers turning God's grace into a license for immorality. In Romans, uh, Romans, in Romans, Paul absolutely. asks the very question. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So, I mean, so absolutely great grace can be misused, but at that point, the problem is not grace. It's the misuse of grace. We could also disuse God's grace. We can tragically live as though the good news is not as good as it actually is. And then there's the right use. And I love, the, I think the book of Titus is one of the most enjoyable books of Paul arguing, you know, God's grace brings salvation to all as appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live a righteous life as we wait for the appearing of our God and Savior. So grace is not a green card to be a moral moron. It's, you know, it is a transformative power that declares God's radical acceptance, but also his provision to make us like Jesus. Yeah. Another thing that I found really interesting, I mean, you are a big church guy. I think you said that when you first started following Jesus, you were a little bit of a, re a rebel. Very much. Without a cause, but now Very you're much. a rebel with a cause. There we go. You, you love the church yeah. and you love... You know, what we call the ordinary means of grace, yes. prayer, preaching, the sacraments. sacraments. Yes. Now, I want to, I, I'm hearing this expression, ordinary means of grace, a lot. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Yeah. In one sense, it's a misnomer because the ordinary means of grace are the exact opposite. They are extraordinary. They are extraordinary, yes. But here's the deal, Scotty. Sometimes, maybe I've got it wrong, but I feel it's been weaponized. And again, it's like a club beating me over the head. Yes. So it becomes a thing rather than just something to be enjoyed yes. and reveled in. It's becoming like a party. It's becoming like a slogan. What's gone wrong when we take beautiful things and we turn them into a party political platform? Well, the the language, you know, as I interact in that phenomenon, you know, um, good spiritual disciplines 
can become either a means of self-righteousness or a means of grace. And I think that's helpful language to distinguish between the two when the when what we call spiritual disciplines, when we call refer to things like Bible reading or engagement in the local congregation, uh, lifestyle of, of, of appropriate biblical formation. Uh, if, I, if, if I wrongly believe those things are adding to my righteousness or putting a bigger smile on God's face, then I fall into uh, a form of legalism, and I probably will put other people under that law. But I love the language Means of grace, you know, and here's where I go with that often. What if I were to come from a long day of work and sat down in the middle of my kitchen and started whining about how hungry and thirsty I was? All the while, I'm sitting in front of a refrigerator with paid food for, paid for food. It would be like, what a, what a, get up and go enjoy what is freely yours. Find your nourishment. Look, Scotty, quit whining and go enjoy the fact you've got a refrigerator and a cupboard full of good stuff. I see the ordinary means of grace like that, David. I'm a hungry, thirsty man, language that Scripture uses over and over and over. And look at the good gifts that God gives us that, um, that are a means of grace, the water fountain, the bread. If I don't use those, I starve. You know, mm. If I uh, ignore the means of grace, there are consequences. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to lose my salvation but uh, I, can, I can absolutely know the consequences of a failure to enjoy the means of grace. And so I think images like that are more important than the way we think about discipleship today to excite people, uh, which will involve certainly knowing the propositions of the gospel. My generation did not understand the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. Mm-hmm. And we saw the Christian life as a second chance, a clean slate, go fill it up with your good quiet times mm-hmm. and your mission, short-term mission trips, as opposed to saying, no, uh, in the gospel, we're not just giving a clean slate, we're giving a full slate of Jesus' righteousness. Mm-hmm. Therefore, being fully and eternally accepted in Christ the obedience of faith and love is how we want to live, not the obedience of fear and guilt and pride. And I think that's a gospel empowerment that we need in this generation for leaders, for others that, you know, we, God's never going to love us more than he does today. He'll never love us less. Therefore, let's obey. Jesus never said, if you obey me, I will love you. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Amen. And that's the gospel is the difference. Yeah. You were talking recently in a conversation that we had that you went to seminary at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, some of the, the listeners will know about that school, some some won't. I mean, Westminster is pretty distinct. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't a party school. No. It, it's not all Miss in a dark suit. No. You know, it, it was a serious place with great scholars. You know, we had a great John Murray, of course, from yes. Scotland here, went there. And in your time, there were some great teachers. Yes. Westminster's big on, on the languages, on confessional Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, confessional Calvinism, but but in we- Westminster, you had an experience of of God, and, and you made friends. I think yes. that uh, you you've stuck with through the last 40, 50 yes, years of ministry. Yes. Tell us a little bit about about what happened at Westminster 
uh, and what that experience well, was for you. thank you, David. I love telling that story. So I began Westminster in 1975, which in America was on the tail end of what we call the Jesus Movement. So there were some of my peers that had been converted in college ministries that had, had really been a part of something in which their heads and their hearts were both intrigued, right? And and the good news about when we were at Westminster in Philadelphia, there were some faculty that themselves were really in a real season of uh, not just remembering the days half the faculty from Princeton came over to start Westminster in response to liberalism, but you know there were uh, there was a faculty in the student body uh, very unique, I would say, to a season when um, um, our hearts were being captured afresh by the good news of this Reformed faith. And so I use that language, lyric and music, or theology and doxology. And I fortunately happen to have as my assigned advisor a man three years into a renewal in the gospel, a great defender of the Reformed faith, but a man, Jack Miller, who along with a missiology professor, Harvey Kahn, that just lived a robust love for Christ before us in the classroom. And it was a very unique time to be there. And like you said, out of that, 44, 45 years later, some of those people I studied with are Tell us the story friends. of the moment you met Jack uh, Miller. Yes. Do you remember the uh, moment you met him? great story. Well, so I, I show up. Uh, again, I never wanted to go to seminary. I never wanted to work in a church. And God has a great sense of humor, so he writes our story. So I go to Westminster and get my little card saying, uh, Scott Ward-Smith, uh, incoming student, C. Jack Miller, C. Period Jack John Miller is your advisor. So I did not know who this man was. And I went into Machen Hall, of course, mm-hmm. after the great Gene Gresham Machen, and uh, knocked on his door. And uh, he opens his door. He actually had a door, like a nice curved European door, like like the Hobbit. He was kind of like, you know, the, the Shire. Shire. Yeah. It was, and before I even had read Tolkien. But so this professor opened the door, and I'm prepared just to say, I'm your new student. And uh, I reach out my hand in humility to say, Hello, Dr. Miller. My name is Scotty Smith. And he literally reached right under that extended hand, put his arms around my back, and pulled me into his chest. And I was not prepared for he that. He hugged you. He hugged me. And and it was an embrace. He didn't just immediately hug and let go. It's like, okay, where am I? Um, uh, uh, well, where I was was in the embrace of a great man that had really been renewed in his love for Jesus, who was a professor who started... Uh, introducing me and many of my friends to the gospel in a way that's been transformative. I mean, it was Jack Miller that uh, said to Tim Keller, go plant that church in New York. It was uh, uh, Joe Novenson, a friend of this uh, community, whose son lives in Edinburgh. We were students together. Many of us just saw, here's the beauty of the informed mind and the inflamed heart. Here, Here's what it can mean to take this... Uh, good deposit of Reformation theology, seriously, not just against liberalism, but really swimming in the implications. I think what I saw Jack do was, uh, I love a good piece of meat, good steak, a good fish that's been marinated in the right sauce. What Jack showed us was when you marinate in the truth of the gospel, it's going to change you because you're going to see more of the beauty of Jesus, not just the teaching of Jesus. And uh, 
that impacted me more than anything and really shaped me as I began to think about theological study and in time planning a church and now at almost age 70, finishing not retired, but refuel, refocus, reframe, you know, serving, hopefully growing more in the joy of the Lord and serving younger leaders that are emerging like Simon over here. Yes, Simon, our technical guru. He's the unseen face behind this podcast, Simon Kennedy, a legend in his own lifetime. And he's not going to be allowed to edit this out. Um, Let's just, in the five minutes we've got left, talk about Prayer. Mm. Now, prayer is not a superpower. It's a discipline. You know, the disciples said to Jesus, teach us, Lord, to pray. Yes. Um, how have you found in your prayer life mm. over the years, mm. uh, how were you taught to pray? Well, yeah, I sound re- redundant, hopefully re- redemptively redundant, but prayer became um, less a discipline and more a delight for me as I watched Jack Miller be transformed by the good news of his adoption in Christ and the good news of the radical gift of Christ's righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. Jack lived out before us in the classroom and in life a love for prayer, and it was Jack, uh, which I'll share later today, who, through studying the promises of God, began to realize the promises of God claim us, we don't claim them. And for Jack, that meant prayer is the environment where my heart fellowships with my Father, I come alive to the beauty of Jesus, I, uh, I experience the power of the Spirit that will free me to the joy of repentance, unto a life of missional living and loving. So, I mean, quite honestly, I had the most amazing uh, prayer training by a man that was not thinking of prayer as a project, but as a lifestyle. And it's why his son, Paul Miller, went on to write that fabulous book, A Praying Life. I mean, Jack Miller's son, Paul, who is a wonderfully gifted servant of Jesus, has helped many understand the life he saw his own father live. So it, it's a discipline, yes. I get up early in the morning. Uh, that's not to boast. That's just to say, um, you know, I want to fill my heart more. Is it a bit of that just personality, the way you're wired? You're a morning guy. You know what? I, I would, I'm comfortable with that. My wife's a night guy, mm. gal, thankfully. But she, uh, she you know, at, uh, for me, after 8 p.m. at night, if I don't have a good cup of coffee or a good cup of tea, you know, I, I kind of start, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. But Darlene, is a, Darlene will commune more with the Lord personally later in the evening, me early in the morning. So, yeah, there's nothing righteous about get up before the sun. But I do believe, like with any relationship, if, if I will make time for what's important to me, and, and I know that I am arrogant enough that my heart will drift from the good news of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus if I'm not deliberate and wanting just to enjoy him, because he enjoys me more than I enjoy him. Scott, or Scotty, it's been a real delight to have you with us today. And um, is there any, you know, if you were to give one word, you know, this is Paul, farewell to the Ephesian elders, Scotty Smith, farewell to the Scottish church for the time being. Hopefully you're not going to prison. Hopefully we're not going to be fed to the lions. But 
what would you say just as a word to especially the Scottish church? I mean, the, our Generation Podcast listeners are worldwide, thankfully. And please spread the word about the podcast, by the way. Tell others about it. Okay. Final word, Scotty. Yeah, my final word would be to my own heart, to you, David, to Simon, to all of us listening. As I mentioned this morning, there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. I would pray for my heart, for our generation, that we would hear Paul very seriously when he says, mind the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is so much more to the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus than we have yet to discover. One day, finally, when he returns, we will be free of our unbelief. But let's just continue to grow and groan in the good news of the gospel of God's grace. That's the word I want to live in until I suck my last oxygen or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. Thank you, amen. Okay, so much more. That's so a great much way more. to end. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for listening in today. Please join us again next week and just meditate, ruminate on the things that we've spoken about. We've spoken about good things and we've spoken about a good person, Jesus hmm. of Nazareth, not a myth but the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.